So we've been, uh, this is the seventh, this is part seven, I believe, in our uh, series, our Genesis series, our series on taking the next step, the story of Abraham. And um, as you recall, the story of Abraham, if you were here for the introduction, you know this. If you didn't hear the introduction, it's super important you go back on the website and find the intro message because it's hard to understand all the rest of it without that message. But there's the, the basic review of that is that there's Hebrew poetry um, has these things called chiastic structures, chiasm, which is God organizes stories and organizes things in the scripture in such a way to reveal a point. And, you know, one of the greatest examples we've talked about, first three days of creation, God makes space. Then the next three days, God fills those same spaces. And then on the last day of creation, it's different than the rest of them because that's the point that God wants to be with his people. Uh, And uh, whenever there's a structure like this, it happens in the New Testament and the Old Testament, the point, sometimes it's like three, three, and one, but oftentimes it's like there's these stories about like the miracles of Jesus and they, the, the first one and the last one will line up, and the second one and the second to last one will line up, and they kind of form like a triangle, and the middle one is the one that's the point. Either way, the way that whatever the point is, what you find is, is the initial stories really oftentimes have to do with the human side of it and the people. But the, the pinnacle, the point, is always a thing about God. Because the Bible's always like a God story. Right? And it's how God reveals himself to humanity and how he deals with humanity. And so there's these great stories of faith that we need to learn from and people doing all these amazing things. But at the end of the day, when we read the scripture, what we're supposed to learn about is God. Um, Not just about how to live a better life or how to be people of faith, but we're supposed to learn about God. That's what the the Bible does. It reveals God to us. And so we are getting, we're in uh, the, the seventh story in that chain. It's kind of been making a progression, and we are getting dangerously close to the point here. We're not quite there, but we are getting dangerously close, and in this story, you can start to smell it, okay? It's starting to come out where it's getting less and less about Abram, and it's getting more and more about God, and we're like, oh man, this is getting good, you know? And so we'll see that within the next couple weeks here, we'll be seeing the center of that arrow that points toward God. But it's getting closer. So we're in Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 17 and going to 24. And I'm about to read that. Before I do, I need to remind you of the background of where we are in this story because this, it won't make sense unless I give you just a little snippet. Last week, Mike Morby talked to us about the first part of chapter 14. And if you remember what happened, you remember Sodom in, in, uh, in, in, Verse thir- er, in chapter 13, Lot had chosen the land. Abram gave him a choice and said, you've got to choose between two parts of the land. And Lot chose to move towards Sodom. Then we find out at the beginning of uh, chapter 14 that Lot's living in Sodom now. He's moved into the city. And what happens is, is there's these kings that come from the area of Babylon, of like modern-day Iraq. 
And there's four kings who come and they decide they were supposed to have like authority over the other kings, but the other kings like weren't paying their taxes or whatever. And so they decide, all right, enough of this. We're going over to Canaan where those guys are and we're going to take them out. And they do. And they go over and these four kings show up and they fight the five kings in the Canaan area and they take them and they take people captive from that area and they take them back to Iraq, back to Babylon. Now the kings had fled. Their people got taken, but the kings turned tail and ran. Cowards! You know, and they turned tail and ran. So they take off, but in the process, what happens is Lot, Abram's nephew, gets captured and gets taken back to the area of Babylon. So Abram decides to get his guys and get on their horses and go get them. And so they do, and they rescue them, and they beat down these kings, and they uh, rescue Lot, and they bring them back. So he has just now walked back from that war and he comes back into the land in Canaan. Story picks up. Genesis 14, 17 to 24. After his return from the defeat of Chedlamor, that's what we're going with, okay? And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshkel, and Mamre take their share. God's word is good. It's awesome to hear it. It's even better to apply it, to eat it, to live it. I want to ask you a question to kind of set the stage. Have you ever crossed a line, a moral line, something that you weren't okay with? in order to maintain a relationship? Have you ever crossed a line because there was something that you wanted and you were like, I want that thing out here, so I'm willing to compromise on this level in order to achieve that thing out there? I'll tell you a story from uh, my distant past. I was uh, working at Vanguard. I was uh, leading worship at Parker Ford Church at the old church over on Bethel Church a long time ago. Just graduated from Moody. I was licensed in the ministry um, and was preaching periodically and was leading worship, but I was working at Vanguard. And uh, while I was there, it was the first time in my life that I found myself in a social situation that was not working for me at all. And most of the time, social life had been fine. It was easy to connect with people and flow. In this situation, for some reason, in this work environment, it was hostile toward me. 
in this place where we were, we were in. And it was obvious that, it, that, that the awkward nature of that was that they knew I was in ministry and there was this whole weird thing about it. And they didn't know how to handle me. But I wanted to connect with the guys there. And I remember this one time I was talking to this guy. And I, I, there, there was a kind of a basketball league there. And I played basketball with this guy. And I remember I was talking to him. And he started talking to me about one of his favorite artists who's, who was Dave Matthews. And he said, man, have you ever been to a Dave Matthews concert? They're awesome. And I'm like, yeah, I went to a Dave Matthews concert in Chicago. It was incredible. And uh, I was like, it's, you know, it's such a spectacular thing. And I got back to my desk and I sat down. And the Holy Spirit said to me, you did not go to a Dave Matthews concert. <laughs> and I said, you're right, I didn't. <laughs> he said, you lied to that guy. And I'm like, he bought it hook, line, and sinker, you know? He said, you need to go and tell that guy. And so I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I go and I talk to this guy and I say, look, man, I said, I don't know what what I was thinking, but we were in the middle of the conversation, and I told you that I went to this concert uh, because, you know, I just wanted to connect with you, and I'm like, but I lied to you. I'm sorry, and <laughs> he looks at me, and he's, you know, I, I, I expected him to laugh at me, to mock me. It was far, far more humiliating than that. You know what he said? He said, Tim, man, I like you. You don't have to lie to impress me. <sighs> Nailed it. Nailed it. The funny thing is, I'm licensed in ministry. I'm the worship leader. And part of the thing is, you know, I'm like seeing that where I'm working and hanging out as my mission field too. And I want to relate to guys and share the gospel with them and all that, you know. And, you know, so I need to try to find ways to connect with these guys and just be friendly and show the light of Christ and everything like that. And I'm going to compromise and my integrity with this guy and build on a false foundation, you know. It didn't work out. Not once did that happen. Twice that happened while I was at Vanguard. I did not learn my lesson. I did it another time with another guy at Vanguard. And then I had to call, and I don't even remember what that was about, that, the second one. I just remember I had to go back and share with him again. I'm like, this other guy, I'm like, dude, I'm a total moron. I don't know why I did this, but I, I lied to you. I lied to you. And the guy was like super awkward about it. That guy was just like, oh, I don't know what to do with you right now. You know, I'm like, I don't know what to do with me right now either. You know, it's funny, when we want something, there are moments where uh, we have a temptation to compromise, and uh, maybe you guys don't have the same, uh, the, the same stories in your background, but all of us have stories of where we were with people, and where we had an objective, and there's a moment, a temptation to compromise in order to keep moving forward. This is a story here about not making false agreements about not agreeing to something that compromises our integrity and our relationship with the Lord. We're calling this message today, Walking the Straight and Narrow. And the straight and narrow can kind of come across as like the boring, tedious, meticulous, I got to dot every I and cross every T and never do anything wrong and make sure that I'm always right and not be a bad boy, but be a good boy kind of thing, the straight and narrow. You know, when Jesus says there's a narrow path, it's the path of life. It's the path to relation that, that walks in relationship with God. It's not about being good for God. It's about staying connected. To God. 
It's about walking in the, in the best, fullest way that he has designed for me. And oftentimes, the straight and narrow way is not the way of comfort. It's not the way of ease. It's not the way of simplicity. Sometimes, it's the way that says, I have to take great courage and great faith in a position that would be very difficult, and I have to step out in faith and do what other people aren't doing and courageously step out and follow God because the straight and narrow is not about just not doing something bad. It's about chasing and staying connected with God. That's the straight and narrow. And sometimes it means not doing something that I shouldn't do when everyone else is. And sometimes it means doing something that no one else would do in a moment because that's what Christ is doing. And I'm staying with him. The straight and narrow is not about being moral. It's about staying connected with the Lord. Abram has dealt with all sorts of people at this point. He's dealt with the king of Egypt. He's dealt with these kings in Babylon. He's dealt with all sorts of people. And now he comes back to where he's living, and he's dealing with a king of men, one of the greatest kings in his area, the king of Sodom. And he's dealing with a priest of the God Most High. And it's this story sets itself up almost like the angel and the demon thing, you know, where you hear the thing over here and hear the thing over here, and you kind of have to choose. There's these two men who he's standing with, in Salem, in the valley, in the valley, and we'll get into talking in a minute here about what that valley is, but it sets itself up as he has a choice to make. He has a choice to make um, about how he's going to interact with these guys. Oftentimes, the choice between the straight and narrow and the broad path is one that sneaks up on us. Oftentimes, we're not even aware that it's right in front of us. C.S. Lewis has this great way of illustrating this. He says that the, the most dangerous place of compromising your integrity is when you're laughing with your friends. And he displays this in his book called The Hideous Strength, which is the end of his space trilogy. I don't know if you've ever read that awesome read. It's a captivating read, that space trilogy. The first two books especially. The third one gets a little long. That's what this one's from, The Hideous Strength. And there's this character in there called Mark. And I want you to hear um, this situation that he describes about Mark. It says, this was the first thing Mark had been asked to do, which he himself, before he did it, clearly knew to be criminal. But the moment of his consent almost escaped his notice. Certainly there was no struggle, no sense of turning a corner. There may have been a time in the world's history when such moments fully revealed their gravity with witches prophesying on a blasted heath or visible Rubicons to be crossed. But for him, it all slipped past in a chatter of laughter, of that intimate laughter between fellow professionals, which of all earthly powers is the strongest to make men do very bad things before they are yet individually very bad men. The moment when we cross lines of integrity are in moments where we still see ourselves kind of walking in a good path and yet we're in the company of people and there's the laughter and there's the goodness and things kind of slide and we allow ourselves to slide. And that's one step. And then one step. And then one step. Abram finds himself in a situation right here where there is a massive temptation to take a step. I want to walk down and look at a few of these words to understand it, okay? 
First of all, the first word in this passage is uh, he comes back to the Valley of Shaveh, okay, which is the King's Valley. What that is, is there's two valleys that surround Jerusalem. One is the Kidron Valley, which runs between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. And if you ever go to visit Jerusalem, one of the greatest pictures you'll see is when you come to the Mount of Olives and your tour bus pulls up or whatever and you're in the parking lot and you're looking over and seeing the whole city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives, of course, is where Jesus wept in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of that. And you're looking over into Jerusalem and you can remember the words of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings like a hen gathers the chicks, you know. And you can see this picture and there's this deep valley there called the Kidron Valley. And then there's this other valley on the other side of Jerusalem that cuts in this way, and it's called the Henan Valley. And that, that is where Gehenna comes from. Outer Gehenna as in hell. Okay? Because this valley is a bad valley. It's where everyone took all their trash, and they would just dump it into this valley, the Valley of Henan. You know? And that valley intersects with the Kidron Valley at the corner of Jerusalem. And right at that corner, if you go to Jerusalem, is this place called the City of David, where they have uncovered David's palace. And so David would stand there at the palace at the corner of these two valleys and watch as the enemies would come toward him. And that's where they wait for the, for the blowing of the wind in the balsam trees before they go and attack the enemy, as the Lord calls. A very, very historic valley here, these, the, the merger of these two valleys, and it's called the King's Valley. And in this moment, Abram comes back, the first of the Jews, the first of the chosen people. He comes back after defeating Babylon and all those other kings, and he comes back to his hometown, to Jerusalem, and he stands at the valley where generations and generations later, King David will stand, and where 2,000 years later, another king of kings will stand. And he stands in this valley, and there to meet him is the king of Sodom. And there to meet him is the king of Salem. Okay, so I want to break down these two words. First of all, first of all uh, so there's this guy Melchizedek. Melchizedek we hear about again in scriptures. The only time in the Old Testament we hear about him is right here. And then we hear about him again. Anybody remember where else we hear about Melchizedek? In Hebrews, right. And we hear in Hebrews about Melchizedek because Hebrews is describing Jesus and says that Jesus came from the priestly order of Melchizedek. What? Okay, so we hear about Melchizedek. Now, who is this guy Melchizedek? It says Melchizedek is king of Salem. You know what Salem is? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It says he's the king of Jerusalem. There is no Jerusalem yet. And as far as we know, the people of Salem, we don't know anything about him. We never hear about this guy. All we know is this land that Abraham's standing in, where the king of Sodom is coming to meet him, the crossroads of hell and heaven. The Kidron Valley and Gehenna, right here at his chosen land. And the king of Sodom shows up, and Abram shows up, and here they are. And guess who shows up? The king of Jerusalem. Whoever that is, the king of Salem, which interpreted as the king of righteousness. If you look at his name and Salem and you put them together, it's the king of justice and the king of righteousness. Or, sorry, the king of peace and the king of righteousness. 
the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And it's an amazing thing. It's absolutely a spectacular thing when you break this down. So there's, there's, there's two things, a few things about Melchizedek that happens. And we, of course, are already, when we hear that he's the king of Salem, which means the king of Jerusalem, where should our minds start to go? Yeah, the king of Jerusalem. Who's the king of Jerusalem? Yeah, I mean, like in 2,000 years, there's going to be a guy standing on that hill that's going to be on a cross, and there's going to be a sign above him that says king of the Jews. There's going to be a moment where he comes walking down that very mount, through that valley, the Mount of Olives. And there's going to be people throwing their cloaks on the ground and throwing palm branches. And they're going to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's going to be a coronation of the King of Jerusalem. On that same exact plot of land, 2,000 years later. The same distance from us to Jesus now. And look what Melchizedek does. Verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And where's our mind supposed to go? Communion. Communion. Of course, when they wrote that, you know, as Moses is writing all this down, writing the stories down, he has no idea about what it is that he's writing. One of the profound things in all of this is these moments in our lives, these little moments where we're sitting around laughing with friends, where we're celebrating a victory or where we're whatever, sometimes we have zero perspective of the gravity of the situation that we're in. I mean, Abram came back and he rescued his son Lot, but does he realize right now that he is standing in the location where God Almighty will come to redeem humanity? And he's standing in that location. Does he realize what's happening? Does he realize that the choices that he's about to make will have ramifications for thousands of years? Even the writer of the story doesn't know. He brings bread and wine. What does the bread represent? What does the cup represent? The blood of Christ, which is the new covenant. We are getting dangerously close to the arrow in this story. We're getting dangerously close to an arrow that points to what it means to have a relationship with the living God. He brings bread and wine. And then parenthetically, he was, it says, he brought bread and wine, and then in parentheses, he was priest of God Most High. Which in case there was any wondering if this is just like, all right, we're having bread and wine, you know, because, you know, we're celebrating or whatever. It, like, puts in parentheses there for us. Hint, hint, if you didn't catch it yet, he's a priest of God Most High, and he's bringing the bread and the wine for a very specific purpose. Man, where does this guy come from? Where does he go? We know nothing about him. It's crazy. The second thing about him is that we find how Abraham handles him. First of all, he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies from your hand. Do you remember when, when Abram left Ur, 
the land of his dad, and he was called to go and, and uh, follow Father God. Do you remember why? One of the things we talked about in the beginning was because he was going to start a new family line for Abram. And who was going to be the patriarch of the family? It wasn't going to be Abram's dad. Who was it going to be? God. He was going to be the son of God. He was going to be a child of God. This was going to be God's people. And so he leaves the blessing, the generational blessing of his father, the land that was his, and he goes to a land that who is going to give to him? God's going to give to him. And now here he is standing in the land that God is going to give to him, the inheritance that God's going to give him. And this priest of God most high shows up with bread and cup and begins to bless him. Who is the patriarch who blesses Abram? God, you know, this picture of Melchizedek is pretty nuts here, you know? When we start to put it together, we're like, where did this guy come from? It's very good that we don't know about ancestry. There's a whole lot of debate as to whether this guy was God himself or not, whether this was Jesus incarnate coming down. So he begins to bless Abram, and he begins to say from this moment on, Essentially, everyone who's with you, it's going to be awesome. Everyone who's against you, it's going to be bad. <laughs> you know, bless are you who has delivered you from your enemies. And Abram responds. And how does Abram respond? He gives him a tenth of everything. What's that called? A tithe. And uh, when do we start hearing about the tithe? Anybody know? It's in the law. And so we start hearing about it in the law. And in, when you read in Numbers, you start hearing about how the nation of Israel was supposed to give 10% of everything they have. Who were they supposed to give it to? Anybody remember? The Levites. Who were the Levites? The priests. Okay? And so what happens here is we have this picture before the laws even in place where the nation of Israel gives 10% of all they have to the people who are doing the priestly duties in order that they can keep doing what they're supposed to be doing with the temple to represent the people to God. Before all of that, this guy shows up with a bread and a cup and he's symbolizing a relationship with God. And Abram instinctively gives the guy 10% of everything he has. Abram was in tune with God deeply in tune with God. How did he know to give 10%? He didn't know. He didn't do it because he was supposed to. He did it because it was in his heart, because it was good, because it was right, because God just showed up and he delivered Lot and he blessed me and he made me victorious over all these kings and this guy comes down and blesses me and he's a priest to God most high and he's here meeting me. You know what? There's gratitude in my heart. I just want to give back to God and he gives 10% and boom, 10% becomes the thing. It's amazing how when we honor God and when we chase God, God uses those moments of faith and obedience and honor and worship and he makes them generational blessings for years and years to come. And oftentimes we ask the question, how much do I have to give to God? And I guess 10% should be the minimum since that's what the scripture says. And You know, Abram, this was like here, Boom to God. He just knew it was God and knew God deserved the honor. And he gives it to him. You know? And for us, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What we choose to invest to 
is what we will end up caring about. And when we want our hearts to be locked in with God, the journey with God, taking the next step, for some of that, for some of us, that's just simply a matter of we have to loosen up our control and we have to begin to say, I want my heart and mind to be attached to God, so I have to give what I own to God in order to start caring more. If you ever wonder, like, I wonder if my heart's locked up and I wonder how to get it to be softer and more excited about God, give to him. Give to him. It's the biblical picture. It's the biblical picture. All right, so uh, that's the, the title. And then it says, and the king of uh, Sodom said to Abram, by the way, when it comes to Melchizedek, I just want you to, I want you to, uh, if you want to learn more about this, I would encourage you to turn uh, this week to Hebrews chapter 7 and do a study of Hebrews chapter 7. Incredible uh, listening to the story of Melchizedek in relation to Christ. And the beautiful thing about this is that um, who, who was Christ's dad? <laughs> you know, interesting question. And, and he's kind of the same way as Melchizedek. We don't really know where he comes from. He just kind of shows up on the scene. Jesus, you know, he kind of shows up out of nowhere. And on one level, he's Jewish because his mom's Jewish and his, like, sort of dad is Jewish. You know, on the other hand, Jesus is also other. He's outside of everything. He starts a new covenant that's based in bread and wine, you know. And he, he comes kind of outside the scene, and he comes in to bless the people of God and to get the new covenant going. All of those things have such a resemblance to Melchizedek. And if you want to learn more about that, then go and read Hebrews 7 throughout this week and study more about that. Now, the contrast here is really thick and really strong. This is where uh, it kind of takes a turn, okay? It says, And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Now, what's this about? What's this about? You remember where, where, the, where did the king of Sodom just come from? Where did he just come from? He was in hiding. Right? So he had ran, let his people got, get taken, and he was in hiding. Abram goes and gets his people and all of his possessions and brings them back. And so what's the king of Sodom doing showing up in Jerusalem now? He wants his stuff back. And he wants his people back. Now the king of Sodom was obviously the most lucrative Wheeler and dealer in the area. Sodom was known all throughout the scripture. And if you look further into the scripture, it was the central place of injustice in this sense. It was a total elitist town. You had to be a certain kind of person to hang out in Sodom. It was a high rollers town. All the brokenness that we think of and all the immorality, that was not from like blue collar world. That was from extreme white-collar world. Sodom were the high rollers of the day. And there was massive injustice. As a matter of fact, if you tried to do things, come in there and interact with them or trade with them, enormous tax that would run people out of town. And this was a guy who was a wheeler and a dealer, and he knew how to make money. And yet, when the pressure came to the king, he turned around and ran. When Abram goes and does some blue-collar work for him and comes back with all his stuff, he wants his stuff back. And this is how he handles Abram. He says, I'll tell you what. You know what, Abram? You did a great job. Thanks for going and getting my stuff. Why don't you keep my stuff? Just give me my people back, and you can keep the stuff. 
friends, bread and wine, laughter, celebration. Seems like nothing. Abram looks him square in the eye and he says, I will never take a cent from you. I will never take a cent from you because you want to own me. And at the end, when God blesses me, you're going to want to take credit for it. And you're going to want to think that I owe you something. I'm at a crossroads right now. And what he says is, I lifted my hand to God most high, and I swore to him that I would never take a dime from you. This moment creeps up on him. You can fly right past this in Scripture and never see it. Just like Abram could have flown right past this moment and could have been like, cool, more stuff from Sodom, you know? Grown his stuff and kept moving forward. I think Abram learned his lesson. Do you remember when he got his last download of a whole lot of money? It was when Pharaoh gave it to him because he lied to Pharaoh about his wife. And Pharaoh took his wife and gave him a whole bunch of stuff. God protected his wife in that situation. He got super rich, but it destroyed their marriage in many ways. This time, Abram's looking around and he's like, I am here in the land that God has given to me. And Melchizedek just showed up and God essentially is offering a covenant. And I'm going to honor God and I'm going to say, I don't need you. I need God. The straight and narrow is the moment when we say, there is a line in my life that will not be crossed because I want to say yes to God. So I can't say yes to that. When you look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were living in Babylon, they had lines they wouldn't cross. I want to ask you, what are your lines? What are the things that you know, I will not cross this line? The important thing for Abram was that he didn't draw that line in the moment. He said, I already raised my hand to God and swore to him. I would invite you to meditate and think ahead of time. Where are the lines in my life that I'm not willing to compromise so that when you get into the situation where compromise is possible, you already know where you stand? Because one of the most dangerous things is to try to make up our minds about stuff once we're in this situation. We lose perspective. This is not about being righteous. Abram doesn't look at the king of Sodom and be like, I'm better than you. I don't do that stuff that you do. He just wanted to stay with God. The straight and narrow is not about being better than other people. The straight and narrow is staying connected to God. And if we try to do the right things so that we can look around and think we're better than others, we're not on the straight and narrow. We're on the self-righteous path. But when we say ahead of time, God, how would you have me live? Outline that with me, and I will commit to that so when I'm in this situation, I know where we stand so I can stay connected to you. That is what it means to walk in close relationship with God. So I want to ask you today, when it comes to honoring God, like Abram honored Melchizedek, where are you at? Are you investing and honoring God? When it comes to your lines of integrity, what are your lines of integrity? And maybe some of them you crossed a while ago, and you need to ask God to continue to cleanse you. And then who are you hitching your wagon to? Be careful about who you hit your wagon with, okay? Because it will change the way you think. Last point, the closer point, is this. We cannot, we cannot, cannot say yes to God without saying no to something else. 
Every time we say yes to God, it means we're saying no to something else. What are we saying no to? And sometimes, in order to say yes to God, it means saying yes to something that everyone else is saying no to. So what are we saying yes to? What are we saying no to? We need to think about that. I ask you, write that down. Meditate on it this week. Take it home. Process. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for the image of Melchizedek here, the priest of God Most High in Jerusalem. What a cool picture. Coming out of nowhere, showing up in Abram's moment of victory. When he could have celebrated and formed alliance, he gained the respect. He could have had the king of Sodom wrapped around his finger. He could have formed partnership with him, and he could have taken over the known world. He could have been the man. He could have been wealthy beyond anyone else. And he said, I don't care about any of it. I don't want any of it. What I want is God. I didn't start on this journey to get rich. I didn't start on this journey to be popular. I started on this journey to stick with God and I'm not about to change it now and I've messed it up before and I don't want to mess it up again. I want to stay with you and God, we just cry out to you that we as your church would have the same experience, that you would wash over us, that you would cleanse us, that you would call us to the place of repentance for the places where we've kind of been our own provider and been our own protector, where we kind of have been wheeling and dealing and being willing to cross lines for this reason or that or to form a agreements that we shouldn't have. God, we ask that in the places where we need to stand our ground in order to stay with you, that, Father God, you would reveal those things. I thank you that for Abram, when he did mess up and when he crossed lines, you redeemed him and you washed him and you loved him and you blessed him. And for all of us who have crossed lines, for all of us who have been sinners, who have not stayed faithful or on the straight and the narrow, we thank you for your redemption, your grace, and your love that's unending and that you never leave us or forsake us, and there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we also thank you that you are a relentless pursuer who will not stop until we walk fully in the path of life. So lead us into it. In the name of Jesus, amen.